Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Kurt Shapi, who follows last month's guest, Dr. Cynthia Sherry, as the next generation of leaders at Radiology Associates of North Texas, and will soon serve as president-elect of the over 200 radiologists practice in Fort Worth, Texas. He also serves as the chair of the Department of Radiology at the John Peter Smith Hospital. An abdominal imager and interventionalist, Dr. Shapi has distinguished himself at the national level within the American College of Radiology as the ACR's advisor to the Relative Value Update Committee of the American Medical Association and as chair of the Reimbursement and Practice Expense Committee of the ACR's Economics Commission. Kurt, welcome. Howdy. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So we like to start by just getting a sense of your background. Where did you grow up? Where were you born? I was born in Galveston, Texas at John Seeley Hospital, the county hospital there. That was when my dad was a gastroenterology fellow there and my mom was a nurse. Were you there for most of your childhood? We were there for a couple of years and then we moved to Conroe, Texas. It's about an hour north of Houston. And that's where I spent the rest of my childhood before going off to college. Sounds good. I've only been to Galveston once, but I remember the beach and it being so close. Is the beach part of your childhood consciousness or is that too early? Not really. I mean, my mom says we walked along the beach and did stuff when I was a newborn, but I think we moved when I was kind of late twos. So most of my early memories, I remember stuff in Conroe. Tell us a little bit about Conroe then. What kind of a community is that? So used to be relatively small town in the 30,000, little under range, you know, an hour outside of Houston. Lake Conroe's there. It's a large man-made lake. We lived off in the hinterlands right on the border. So it's not a whole lot of land, but like five acres. I think the road was about a mile long and there were five people on it. So me and my brothers had a lot of leeway. Like my mom would just shut the door, lock it, and we would play outside all day. Like that's what I remember. That's great. You mentioned brothers? Two younger brothers. Both ended up being masters of accounting, CPA, and JDs doing tax law. Wow, that's interesting. You didn't follow in that family business. They followed. Dad, doc, mom's a nurse. Then I went to med school and they decided that wasn't for them. Though for giggles, they do refer to each other as doctor whenever we're all together for holidays and things like that. Of course. And why not? Doctor of jurisprudence. They're doctors, right? It's not worth arguing. (laughs) Certainly not. Sisters or is it just the three of you? No, it's just three of us. My poor mother. Yeah. It sounds like you guys had a pretty idyllic childhood growing up with so much space and such. What sorts of things did you all enjoy doing other than just sort of rabble rousing outside? Were there any hobbies and stuff you pursued growing up? I played lots of sports when I was young, but then by the time I was nine or 10, settled only on swimming. And then I swam all the way through D1 in college. And that took up A lot of time. I would imagine. Early mornings. Early mornings, in the afternoons. I started doing two-a-days when I was 11. Wow. What do you think drove you to be so committed at that age? I tend to not do things in parts or halves. 
if I'm in it, I'm in it all the way. And so that goes for athletics, school, or any other hobbies or anything I've done. Like I tend to jump in with both feet. I'll learn about it, study it, approach it from both the academic and the physical points. So I like learning the history of swimming. I knew all of the old school swimmers, the people from before I was born. The same thing as other hobbies I've picked up, whether it's golf, mountain biking, cyclocross, like you get into the nitty gritty, the details, the how it works, the why do people do it this way. So it's similar to all the shenanigans I do with government payment policy. It's the stuff that ended up getting me there was the why. Why is it like this? Everybody complains about this, but why, why, why? It's the pathway to success. Did you specialize in a specific stroke? Growing up, I was relatively undersized, and so I was a mid to long distance freestyler, was fine at all the other strokes except for breaststroke. Freestyle butterfly was fine. I was great at backstroke, and this was before the rule where you had to actually swim most of the race. Now they don't let you kick farther under the water than 10 meters off the wall, and I actually got a national cut in backstroke doing probably about 85% of the 100 back underwater. But I was freestyle butterfly. As I got stronger, the distances got shorter. You know, in college, it was 100, 200, 500 free, 100, 200 fly. You mentioned both your folks were in medicine or are presumably still in medicine. Your dad's a gastroenterologist. Your mom is a nurse. Was she working throughout your childhood? She had a few years off with me and my brothers when we were little. And then she went back and did nursing. And so she was ICU, PACU. She was neuro ICU at Galveston when they were there then did PACU and then retire, but it has been brought back as a consultant for a few years now at a time for others, but did a lot of the surgery centers and perioperative management, and then ran all of Carolina's health center, now Atrium, their one-day surgery and their ambulatory surgery centers until she retired. Sounds like she was very busy, and I imagine your dad, too, was very busy with practice. How did their professions influence you growing up? I essentially kind of grew up in the hospital. I would go with my dad to round on the weekends. Now, that may have involved a lot of spinning around in circles on chairs at the nursing station, but being exposed to that environment, I've probably seen more endoscopies than most gastroenterology fellows because the way I used to get a ride to work is my mom was going to work. This was before I started 5.30 morning practices, but my mom would be going to work so early, my dad would take me in to do his first scope or two and then run me over to intermediate school or junior high and then go back into work. So I would watch a scope or two a morning several days a week for several years. Beginning at what age? 10 or 11. Wow. I mean, that's pretty intense stuff for an 11-year-old. The gastroenterology, like the GI tract, the anatomy, the other stuff always just made sense to me, probably because I started it then. And my dad wasn't shy. He would explain stuff. And it's the same thing I do for my girls. They're going to learn the medical terms. They're going to learn the proper way to describe things in the body and what it is. And that this is science. It's medicine. It's humans. It's you. There's nothing here that's weird or strange. How old are your girls? Eleanor is four, going on 14. She'll be five here in just a couple of weeks. And then Lila is eight. Excellent. Can either of them find the spleen on a CT scan? Lila probably can. Eleanor is better at radiographs. <laughs> Bravo. Good. What a fun journey. I mean, it sounds like your childhood was really busy studying medicine at the age of 11 and swimming. Did you also work outside the home? Oh, absolutely. Like that was one of those things my mom thought was important. I mean, I mowed lawns from the time I was about 13. That was the first way I made money. And then one of my good friends from our swimming team, his parents owned McDonald's. And so when we were 15, we started working there. We'd work Friday and Saturday evenings at the McDonald's. And then, you know, 
had different internships going through. And then the summers for college, worked for Pennzoil for a little bit, worked for a software company in Munich for a little while, all over. So your first job outside the home was at Mickey D's? If you don't count the mowing lawns, my first like formal paycheck where I actually had to report taxes, yes, that would be McDonald's. Any lessons that you kind of carry with you from your time in fast food? Oh, absolutely. They didn't run McDonald's like they were a fast food restaurant. They ran McDonald's like it was one of those opportunities that people had to go get good food and that the experience of it was important. The restaurant being clean, the people being nice and attention to detail and fixing an order if something was wrong. And so just because you're at some place that's supposed to be, quote, cheap doesn't mean people should have a cheap experience. They ran lean, but they ran it in a way that if people wanted McDonald's, they would go there. They were one of the first ones that did online or faxed orders. And so companies would order 40 or 60 meals from theirs McDonald's like on a Friday or Saturday, and we would be prepping them. And they all had to be fresh. They didn't pre-make it and let it sit there. Even though there were corporate rules about how long things could sit pre-made, we basically made things to order. And it was one of those where you can see how leadership filters down. They were strict, but they weren't authoritarian because they did it too. If the shift was running short, the owners of the McDonald's were covering it and they followed all the same rules they expected you to. And when you could see them doing exactly what they told you to do, exactly how they told you to do it, you don't really have any more excuses anymore. It sounds like you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it in retrospect. <laughs> Truth be told, I was a Burger King guy when I was in high school, and a lot of what you just said resonates. I am intrigued by this software job in Munich. So I was at Princeton for undergrad, and you're required to get to a certain competency in a foreign language, whatever that may be. And so part of the German department had a program where if you were good enough at a certain point, you could interview to be part of their, and it wasn't really an exchange program so much as they would assist you in interviewing for summer internships in Germany. And so given my background, and I had done some early IT informatics stuff, it was my summer job after freshman year, this was a customer relationship management software company called SoftLab in Munich. And there was about nine students that did the program that year. And we were kind of filled. There were three of us in Munich, a couple in Köln, and a couple in Berlin. And I was fortunate to end up at that company in Munich, and it was a great experience. I mean, I had an office with three other of the software developers there. Like My job was doing financial analysis for a line of business they were developing. So essentially, they're a software company. They have fixed server architecture that they have, but they're not using all of it. And this is early days. I mean, you're talking 99, 2000, 2001. So for startup companies one of their biggest expenses would be setting up their systems infrastructure. And so they were looking at a way to price letting other people use their architecture in a way that was profitable for them, but not so expensive that they would want to go ahead and build their own. So that was the optimization model that I was working on for my internship. That's wild. And, you know, just thinking about going from 11 years old and studying the features of the colon to doing financial modeling for a software company in Munich, all before you've graduated college, that's a rich and diverse experience of competencies. I tried other things, but healthcare was always there in the background. Thinking back to your earliest days, what do you recall as your first experience as a leader? That's tough. There was some unintentional 
positions there. Formally, I would say it was probably in our club team spanned age groups. So club swim team was the woodland swim team growing up. We had people at the senior nationals, Olympic trial levels. I was in our junior slash senior national group all the way down to our state age group and then all the way to like six, seven, eight years old. But they elected team captains. And there was one year that me and one of my really good friends, Carolyn Conrad, were the team captains. And that was not a position I sought out, not a position I had ever really considered. But then we became kind of the interface for a lot of the other swimmers, the younger swimmers specifically. And sometimes it was easier to have peer-to-peer discussion as opposed to having a parent or a coach talk to somebody who's having issues or not representing well. And specifically, whenever we traveled for swim meets, it was important not to be a problem. You're representing the entire team when you go there. And if you're wearing a shirt that says the Woodland Swim Teams and acting like a jerk, that makes all of us look bad. And that message comes across better when it's delivered to you by a peer than it does by somebody telling you, hey, quit. So that was kind of the first experience with the position comes with some unintentional moral authority, and you have to be careful with how you use those chips, as it were. So after high school, you went straight to Princeton? Yes. And I like to joke that I Forrest Gumped my way into Princeton. I applied early. It's one of those first times where you could do early decisions. And I had never even considered the Ivy League or the others. And the coach reached out and asked me to come on a recruiting trip for swimming. Because they could recruit for athletics, but part of the Ivy League agreement is they don't do athletic scholarships. It was one of the first offers I got to, hey, come take a look at it. And one of our other swimmers ended up being invited as well. I was like, all right, fine, I'll go. John's going, I'll go. And then when I was there and learned about how they approach things, how they do you know, the teaching, learning, and the environment on the campus, I was like, oh, I actually like this quite a lot. <laughs> I hope I can get in. And it sounds like that was your first trip, your first visit. First visit, and it was the first school I applied to. And since I applied early, at that time, you can only apply to one early. You know, I applied, struggled through that application. I was not the best writer in high school. I did not respect rules, standards. I preferred E.E. Cummings to your Edgar Allan Poe or some formal standard writer. And so getting those together and not misrepresenting myself was a challenge. I remember the first drafts of essays I took to my English teacher, and she's like, no. I think it was due like November 1st or whatever. So really early. The decisions came out in early December. I hadn't completed a single other application by then because they weren't due until January. And so technically it was the only application I completed. Well, that is very efficient. Did you ever wonder, you know, maybe you just really like stuff and you like situations. And so you went to Princeton and you really liked it. Maybe you could have gone to any number of universities and you would have really liked it as well. Maybe even really liked it more. Oh, absolutely. It's the same thing as when I was going through medical school for specialties. It's like, damn, I liked everything a little bit. OB-GYN was my first clinical rotation. I was like, this is really cool. I want to do like OB-GYN surgery. And then, you know, I did medicine, surgery, and the rest. I liked all of them a little bit. So let's drill on Princeton a little bit. What did you study? I actually went into Princeton thinking like, I want to do chemical engineering. You know, I like it. It's systematic. And I sat down because they assign you an advisor when you go for like that week of orientation. And we laid out what the schedule would look like to do chemical engineering. And I was like, no, not doing that. There was like no elective time the whole way through. I was like, I didn't come here to not learn and explore stuff. Like that's not happening. And so 
exited that, probably set the land speed record for quitting chemical engineering since I quit it like nine minutes into my appointment with my advisor. Ended up selecting psychology, though I did psychology, economics. They don't really do double majors. So I ended up just majoring in psychology, but all the research I did was on behavioral finance and economics of psychology with my thesis advisor, Danny Kahneman. Yeah, I want to talk about Daniel Kahneman for a little bit. But before we do that, finance really crept in at a pretty early stage for you. And, you know, given your parents' orientation, not necessarily in the financial field, where was the affinity? What drew you into finance? It was how things got done. And once you're in the Northeast, there's that big Wall Street draw, just that gravitational pull of the financial world. And I wasn't one of your dead setters. That's where I was going to go be. But it was a skill set that clearly was important and you could see how it led to many, many other places just to have some facility with it. And so I took some accounting and financial engineering classes, but I didn't major in those. I read something recently where one of the most popular majors at Princeton now is their operations research and financial engineering major, which is kind of a shame. But I wanted that broad liberal arts education. I took pieces of a lot of things. I mean, I took poetry classes, anthropology of death and death rituals, like learning many things. You know, your art of the generalist, you mentioned in one of your other podcasts, like I think there's value in being a little bit of a renaissance. It would seem to be just a plum opportunity to be able to work with Daniel Kahneman and working with him for two and a half years. And of course, Dr. Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winning economist known for his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and more formally addressed as bounded rationality of judgment and decision-making under uncertainty. How did it come about? How did you come to work with Daniel? Right. So when you were picking your majors, when you were a sophomore, the departments have open houses and meet and greets. And then as you go through that, you need to select kind of an advisor to do it. And ironically, I was not at that time familiar with Danny's work, but they had the list of advisors and who was there was Eldar Shafir, who was actually a student of Kahneman and then there on his own. He ended up going to the Kennedy School, I believe, shortly thereafter. But I had initially asked to work with Eldar Shafir, because he was doing kind of the intersection of public policy and psychology and some of these other pieces. And it was bringing in the finance pieces. And I forgot the specific paper that he had that interested me, but it was at that juncture, which is one I find myself in now. But he was doing like a visiting professorship and wasn't going to be there. And so he suggested like, hey, you know, I'm glad you're interested in this, but I won't be around. You should talk to Danny, because I think where he's working would also be of interest to you. So like other things, it was a little serendipitous that I ended up with Danny. Marvelous. And so tell us a little bit about the work you did with him. Right. So you're looking at decision-making and his initial research partner was Amos Tversky. I highly recommend the book by Michael Lewis, The Undoing Project, that goes over kind of the history of how Danny and Amos did their initial work, because it's very accessible, as Michael Lewis tends to write. To break it down very simply... We looked at decision-making heuristics. My junior paper was more on kind of the background and positing a neuropsychologic model for it, like why these things would be there. But my senior thesis was testing that model. And specifically, what we'd look at is decision-making heuristics and how much you can influence them when you put people under stress or fatigue. And so the example we were specifically examining for my project was the anchoring effect. An example for people here would be An anchor is a number that people irrationally fixate on when coming to a solution for a problem that they don't know the answer to. So a classic example that Danny and Amos did was they had a Wheel of Fortune style wheel that they would spin in front of 
the students they were doing the tests on, and it would land on a number. And they'd say, are there greater than or less than 41 countries in Africa? People were like, there's a lot of countries, but I don't think there's 41. I'd say less 37. And then spin it again, and it'd say something like 18. And they're like, do you think there are more or less than 18 countries in Africa? And they're like, ooh, 18 doesn't seem like enough. I'd say 24. And you see how they adjust insufficiently from the anchor because they're using something that has no relevance to the question, and they're just adjusting from it. So you take that into context. What we were looking at is comparing when you ask a native pool of people or a naive pool of people about these anchors, and then if you take a pool of people and put them under stress. Now, the problem with those is you can mix those research pools. So we ended up doing it and had a creative way for mixing it. So we were testing it internally within the same subjects. But an example to establish anchors, there's a list of questions. We had about eight or 10 mixed in with a bunch of nonsense that had nothing to do with the research. But you go to a group of separate people, you're not going to research again. How many stairs are in the Eiffel Tower? And we chose questions like this because there's not a right answer to it because there aren't stairs all the way to the top or bottom. But most people don't know that. And so they're going to take a guess. And so you take the 15th and 85th percentiles of that guess range, which ended up being about 500 and about 1500. Then you take that and randomize it in that group. And so you ask them, do you think there are more or less than 500 stairs in the Eiffel Tower? And people are like, ah, it seems pretty tall. There's more, mm, 700, 750, more or less than 1,500. Ooh, that's a lot, 1,250. That's about where they were. But then if you take that same question and you put those people under stress and you ask them again, what we showed is statistically significant that they rely more on the anchor or they adjust less away from the anchor. That's the whole point of bounded rationality. You have limited bandwidth. And if I occupy some of that bandwidth, you're going to make worse decisions in a measurable way. So how do you bring that knowledge and awareness of human behavior into your day to day? I was asked this question so many times on med school interviews. It's like day to day, it gets a little bit tough because you have to get deep in the weeds of wherever you are to apply this to things like medicine. It's easier to apply to finance, real estate. They've got all those studies. Northcraft and Neil wrote the damn seminal paper on how these anchoring effects apply to real estate and insurance people who come and evaluate the house and decide what it's worth or what have you. And how depending on the prices and the price history you give them, you can show that people clearly anchor on this data that you know, you're supposed to be an independent arbiter of this value, but you're relying on historical data that may or may not be accurate. So for day-to-day, it's much more important when I teach residents, fellows, and other people about like personal finance issues and your fatigue under decision-making and the importance of, say, automating good habits. So that's the whole point of good habits. And you want to make a radiology comparison. This gets down to your search pattern. If you have a good habit, that good habit is done with a very low effort. So it takes up very little of your mental bandwidth. But establishing that habit takes effort. But if you establish good habits, eating, exercising, your search pattern for radiology, automating your good financial behaviors, then those things happen and they don't require you to make constant decisions because decisions make you tired. The more decisions you have to make, even though they seem small, they accumulate and you get decision fatigue at the end of the day. You will make worse decisions at the end of the day. And there's robust literature showing that judges, parole boards, and other people, depending on the time of day that you interact with them, you will have statistically significant different outcomes. And so that's where that decision-making comes in Good habits are low energy, and if you can automate those good habits, like you make the decision when you have mental bandwidth and then automate it so you don't have to keep making that good decision, like saving or investing, well, then you've taken a huge chunk of the variability out 
and it makes the rest of your life easy. And that's one of those things that I focus on for our informatics and IT efforts. We're not trying to make people faster. You know, it's not necessarily 100% about efficiency, but if I can take 17 decisions and make it 12, I will make that radiologist statistically safer at the end of their shift than if they had to make all 17 of those clicks and decisions every single time all day. The competencies that you developed in understanding about decision-making and bounded rationality probably played a factor in your effectiveness as RUC advisor. And we'll turn to that a little bit later, but that would seem to be a place to apply it. And Melissa Chen and I, she's the neuroradiological RUC advisor. She did finance background as well. She and I have talked for a long time about writing a paper on lessons from the RUC because the RUC is psychology in motion. And that is absolutely what it is. Let's get to that in a little bit. But the the last question I have about Kahneman and working with him is that you helped him prepare his Nobel Prize presentation? That was after I graduated from college. I applied to enter med school when I was a junior going into senior in college. I applied as an MDMBA, and all my experience, as you have heard, was mostly business. I answered a lot of questions on why medicine, why this, why that, and my grades were good, not great. I hadn't even done bio by the time I was a senior. I had not finished my pre-med requirements by the time I took the MCAT. And so my MCAT score was good, not great. And I got waitlisted everywhere. And so I ended up staying and did a year with Kahneman. And after deciding on a couple different things, I was like, you know what, screw it. You know, I'll finish the pre-med requirements. I'll retake the MCAT and we'll just apply again. And so did that the summer before I did basically nothing but skydive and study and take the MCAT, then went back and worked with Danny and reapplied. But a lot of my good grades were all senior year and your thesis counts for eight credit hours, which helps when you get an A on it. And so I think I applied the first time with like a three and I graduated with a three, six and a magna cum laude from the department. So my application was better the second time coming through, and nobody gave a crap about the business experience because my grades were better, which didn't really endear me to the process for applications and interviews because people do it very badly. But that's a whole different conversation. But yeah, so when I was with Danny, the Nobel notification was like in the fall, and I was at a med school interviewing, and it tended to be one of those more academic ones. And I mentioned that, and the guy's like, well, that just changed your whole day. And I was like, well, that just means everything you do is crap because that was a meaningless detail for the rest of the application. But it didn't hurt me. So part of the Nobel is they prepare a paper and a presentation, and that's the talk they give. And so we prepped the paper, and I did his citations. All of the drawings that are in that paper were me. Like, we'd sit there in his office about what he wanted to demonstrate, and then I would draw it in my pitiful graphics program that I had. A, B, C, 12, 13, 14? Yep. Exactly. (laughs) Nice. I did look at the paper. What a fantastic experience. And so am I hearing that you essentially had a gap year? It's the best thing that happened to me. (laughs) Yeah. So talk to me about what you did during your gap year. The gap year, we worked on a couple projects. Me, Danny's post-grad and him worked on a few projects. We talked about expanding some other stuff. You know, we ran a lot of experiments with the undergrads. So I'd be the one that was recruiting and getting them and running some of the experiments, looking for different ways to measure and test things. Some of the stuff worked, some of it didn't. When you're evaluating people on these psychological scales, you know people can keep track of numbers and how they responded to something. So you're not getting their like 
intuitive initial response. And so one of the things we were testing was, could we use a hand dynamometer, a pressure gauge? Instead of giving them a Likert scale or a one to seven, could you give them the dynamometer and have them scale it and other stuff for a wafer they couldn't really keep track of it? And so there was just like the emotional response which you were trying to get at. And we just, we couldn't replicate it. But Danny was always considered one of the better empirical psychologists, but to get to see the process, and you read about it now in different business settings and Amazon does it, but you got to try stuff and you're going to fail. Just because you happen to be one of the best people in the world as it doesn't mean every idea is going to work. You got to have room in your armamentarium for having multiple things in play because not everything is going to pan out the way you think it is. So you spent essentially the bulk of the year with Danny and you mentioned skydiving as well, which sounds very cool. I know it's rather expensive, so I guess you managed to pull that all together. That was what you get for being an intern in finance. I got paid more for doing a summer as a private equity analyst than I did as an intern. Stayed at home the summer in between senior year and when I went back to work with Danny. And so basically all I did was I had my own parachute. We'd go there. You know, I packed it. You jump it, all you're paying for at that point is fuel for the airplane. So it doesn't get that expensive when you have your own equipment and you're doing the rest of it. But other than that, I would take MCAT practice exams and do skydiving because that was the problem was I was always working one or two jobs or doing something else and trying to study or do whatever. And so when I only studied and did things to relax from studying, I got much better results. And I did the same thing for step one in med school. Like I took six weeks off and did nothing but prep for step one. It's like, you guys think the exam's important? Fine, I'm going to treat it that way. And did nothing but prep for step one, even though I think it's silly to base it on tests like that, just like I think the interview process is inherently biased. And this matters for government payment policy and all the rest. You don't have to like the game, but you have to play the game until you get to a point where you can change the game. Carrying around and packing your own parachute, there is some lessons in that too. <laughs> and I tell that to the techs now, not directly reference to skydiving, but where I learned the reference is you always check each other's stuff and specifically a pin check. You want to make sure there's not a knot. You want to make sure that the chute's going to launch correctly. Nobody ever got hurt for a second check. It's the same reason I work at the hospital with my door wide open. I don't want any barrier in between somebody coming and asking me a question that could impact patient care. And so if they come and ask me something or they ask me to take a look at it, which is exactly what we've trained them to do, exactly what we want them to do, I make sure that that experience is positive for them. It's like nobody ever got hurt for having a second look or a second set of eyes or doing a double check. But if you are annoyed, and this is why I try to teach some of the younger reds, if you answer the phone and you're annoyed or you're short or they perceive that you don't appreciate what they're doing, even though you probably do, they're going to do it less or they're not going to do it. And the problem is you never know where or when or how much harm that might cause. So you mentioned that you had a summer before you went back to work at Princeton in private equity. And I know that it seems that this was probably a formative experience for you spending time in private equity, reflecting on it. Was it just that one summer that was the time? So it was about four months that I was an analyst for them. Like I went early and stayed late and basically went straight from school. And it was a kind of mezzanine level private equity firm. So you're looking at much lower dollar volumes than the private equity firms people toss around today, the ones participating in corporatization and healthcare or whatever. We were looking at deals in the 5 to $25 million range where you have some of these giants now who won't sniff at anything until it's in the billions. They were a couple investment bankers that left from Raymond James, which is based in Tampa, Florida, and started their own shop and essentially 
essentially, you know, I was looking for experience, but, you know, the Wall Street stuff was just a hot mess and it was difficult to break into, especially if you're a little bit of an iconoclast and you don't have a pedigree. And so I actually cold called them to get the internship. So and worked with them, which was great because I got to do a bit of everything. It's a smaller shop. They're relatively new. So you get to learn all of the parts of the deal making process. And you're not just given a spreadsheet to do a task. Like you've got to do a little bit of everything. So it's a little bit of the startup culture where, again, you have to be a Swiss army knife. You're not just there to be the corkscrew. So in that sense, you got to learn a whole bunch about it. But it also helped me learn that I didn't want to do that. I don't want to insult that they can do important work. It just didn't resonate with me. That didn't excite me. Like it was interesting to learn the tools and I liked it for learning the tools and the process, but it wasn't something I was going to be excited about doing. How would you differentiate venture capital from mezzanine private equity? Private equity and venture capital are very different things. And people confuse those. And even in some of our publications, some of our leaders have used those terms somewhat interchangeably. You can see them as the same as they're investing various amounts of money in companies at various stages. If you want to break it down, venture capital usually is a much earlier stage. They take different types of ownership and supervisory roles within those startups, and they function very much in the network capacity. They hook them up with other people who they have under advisement or bring different people together, and they use their experiences for it. And that encompasses a lot of venture capital. Private equity can be very many different things, from mergers and acquisitions, leveraged buyouts. The words private equity actually didn't really start getting used until the 90s. Previously, these firms were called LBO firms, leveraged buyout firms, because there's much more debt involved than equity. (laughs) And so the private equity is a much bigger spectrum of the investment world. But one thing to understand is these are not one-off deals. These firms raise funds and they have more than one fund. Now they may pass a company from one fund to another, but they raise a fund that usually has a target that it's participating in. And so one of the bigger firms that has participated in the radiology space, that radiology piece is just part of one of their funds. This is not the only thing that they're doing. And so then you get up to the really big private equity firms who may be taking a public company back private to potentially separate it or break it off into pieces, merge it with another company that they think would be better for it to gain economies of scale or perceived economies of scale. You know, it's not just people throwing around money and taking control of stuff. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes there. And the private equity is going to get much more into the management than a VC firm is. Thank you. That's a terrific explanation. I'd like to spend a little time based upon your exposure to private equity to talk a little bit about private equity and radiology. What is your perspective on private equity as it has entered the radiology practice area? So I'll say two things. One is... It's a funding model. And so as with any funding model, it can be good or bad. It depends on how you use it and how you behave and what you use with the control and the authority you have. So private practice is a funding model. It's funded from the RADs that participate in that practice. Academics is a funding model, whether it's a combination of grants, the hospital, and their revenues. That's a funding model. And so is a private equity, publicly traded, corporate backed, in a broad umbrella, call it investor backed practices or healthcare, because they can be public or private. And you have many different versions of this, some in seemingly private practice groups that actually have investors in either their MSO, their management arm, or the practice themselves. You can lump them together as investor backed practices. So that's funding models. And you need to separate funding models from any emotional response you have to a funding model. So I don't think any one or the other is inherently bad. That's just where you get your money. That being said, 
I also think that if there's an outside investor in the doctor-patient relationship, that it's an inherent conflict of interest that is irreconcilable. So that's my personal opinion. So you got your factual definitions of funding models for practices. I don't think that you can feel the necessity for the Sunshine Act, for disclosing all of your interactions with pharmaceutical reps or device reps because they're supposedly going to influence your decision-making. But then you're telling me that 20, 30, 40% of every dollar you make has to go to somewhere else and they have a management decision of you that that is not somehow a conflict of interest. I don't believe that. You can't have both. You got to pick one. It seems to me that looking at private equity from the perspective of an investor-backed funding model has both this conflict that you described in terms of the conflict of mission and goals, but also, you know, it's just a matter of where the cash flows go. And to the extent that by introducing this third party of an investor, you need to be peeling off the cash flows. You need to extract rents in order to deliver. And so it's very hard to imagine all things being equal that in delivering the business of radiology, whether it is through deriving margin or delivering quality care or any of those things, that you will do better when you have to take a chunk of your cash flows and hand it off to a third party. Yeah. And that's one way to look at it. And that's certainly there. Now, that being said, there's funding models for a reason. Access to capital can be difficult for certain smaller practices. And if a physician practice, no matter how many people were in it, had basically just been covering their costs, their staff, and then paying the doctors, but not investing back in the practice, they could get behind and seriously behind. Some practices saw this when you had the transitions to electronic health records, your your surgical or internal medicine type practices. And radiology practices were seeing that as government payers were leaning on them for quality metrics, hospitals are leaning on them for metrics and analytics. And if you hadn't invested in these infrastructure over time, the lump sum investment could be a lot. Some practices did that on their own. Some practices had their own proprietary PACs. They established their own networks or provided hospitals with PACs. Some practices did make those investments. Some practices, like my practice, has a multi-million dollar infrastructure for analytics. And it's one of those things that people come to us for help with. But it was built over a decade and a half. And so to lump that money in in one go would have been painful. To do it over time was not. So I understand where people felt that they were caught a little bit in the corner and looking for outside funding. The problem is, and this is the same analogy I make with smoking, is like, look, if you know what smoking does for you and you know the risks, as long as you don't make me smoke with you, fine, you can go smoke. That's a personal decision. You go do it. But it matters for finance too. A lot of people participated in these deals and they didn't understand what the trade-offs were and what it meant. They looked at some short-term stuff and didn't look at the long-term. Smoking's a long-term risk, not a short-term risk. You go to a restaurant and they allow smoking. You get smoke for an evening. You may smell bad, but it's not going to statistically change your risk for cancer. Well, fine. You allow an outside investor to buy part of your practice. You get a lump sum of cash. Nothing terribly bad is going to happen within the first couple months. It's just not. It happens later when those rents may or may not hit where they want. It happens later when you realize that they're going to ask you to do things you don't want or you don't have the ability to make investments that you want because it would challenge your ability to pay those rents. And it comes down to if we choose to make investments in the practice for quality, patient safety, just making the lives of the radiologist better, we don't have to justify that to anybody but us. 
It's a very flat hierarchy in our group. That's one of those things I explained to recruits is how we got our chief medical informatics officer now. He came from a very large academic institution with layers upon layers of stuff to get approved. I was like, you understand there's one layer between your request and whether it's approved here and it's the people you work with and they're all on the same board. The group's very progressive that way. And that's one of the things that I enjoy about it is if there's a good idea, people are going to do it and we're willing to experiment. If something doesn't work, so doesn't work. We're going to keep trying new stuff because if you're sitting still, something's going wrong. Somebody is going to sneak up on you. And so my problem with the private equity and the corporatization is I think that people didn't understand the trade-offs they were making or they accepted that short-term benefit without really weighing the long-term consequences. And I think we're going to have some fallout from it. Now, how messy that gets, there's no way to predict that. I mean, it could get very messy. It could get very, very bad. Morgan Housel is one of my favorite finance writers. And one of the points he's made is that people love hearing from pessimists because it makes them sound smart. And I really try to resist that. Yes, there are ways this will go poorly for the specialty in general, It could also be a complete non-entity, a bump in time. And in 10 years, people won't remember this binge episode that we had with corporatization and things could float back to status quo, whatever that may be. So my preference is that they weren't there because I don't think it's best for patient care and I don't think it's best for radiologists in that sense. But, you know, that's my opinion for what it's worth. Are there any aspects of private equity ownership? that you can imagine are good for our field? It could be. It very well could be. Like I said, the funding model is not inherently bad. It's what you do with it. So if you truly had a group who was investing money and in the Jeff Bezos Amazon sense was playing for the 20 and 30 year game, then yeah. My pessimism comes from the fact that most of their time horizons are much shorter than that. But if you truly had a altruistic investor back group who was making the investment with an eye towards the future, knowing that the return would be a long time off, Yeah, yeah, it could be better. Having capital to do those things absolutely could help, whether it's developing AI, whether it's developing tech that makes radiologists happy to work. Any of that I'm happy with, and it takes time and investments. We're working on some of that stuff. If I had more money to work on it, we could come out with stuff that was better and faster because we could have more developers and more staff. Like We have four full-time developers right now, and it's not cheap, (laughs) and they're fully tasked. We have ideas all the time, and the problem is our queue for code we'd like to write, features we'd like to put in, gets longer and longer. And what it really comes down to is you could get all that done. We just don't have the money to throw at it, so we have to prioritize. So yes, if you had an altruistic investor who was patient and knew that in the long game that this would be better, so yes, I think that person would win. I would love to have that kind of hands-off money development. That's not how the industry in general works. That would be an exception. Those funds usually have dates. Their investors expect returns. That's why they tend to roll over a non-performing or marginally performing investment from fund to fund. Fund one has to close out because those institutions and the people that invested want a return. So fund two will buy an asset from fund one so that asset can hopefully again appreciate. And there's only so many times you can roll that over before people are like, 
look, man, I want my money. Absolutely. I mean, that's just sort of serial hits on the balance sheet as you pass the company around from fund to fund. You know, while we're on the topic of governance and ownership models, maybe we can just talk a moment about the trend toward corporatization. And perhaps you might share with us how you define corporatization. Some people have defined my own group as a corporate entity. So I participated in the ACR task force on corporatization and several of the players, as it were, who were in that conference room thought I was there as one of the corporatizing entities because I was Radiology Associates of North Texas, a 200 plus radiologist conglomerate, as it were. And so I don't think size is the right definition. That's why I lumped them together as investor backed. Because you can use corporate governance models in a private practice radiology group. Several of the larger strategic radiology groups do that. Some of the other large groups have a more corporate structure, but just that's a management choice. It just has that corporate name to it where you have like an executive board and making decisions, committees of jurisdiction, you know, more refined HR rules. You just need that at certain sizes. So I don't think size is a good example. I think it comes down to when you have an outside investor. It's a third party that you have to answer to because that's how companies will work. You have a holding company that has multiple companies. That holding company, depending on how they own it, is going to have certain representation and control over the board of any number of those sub-companies. That's a corporate structure in that sense where there's a command or authority gradient that goes with the investment. So you don't necessarily align the breadth of mission with an element of corporatization, for example, an entity that manages hospitals as well as physician practices and full continuum of care. If you read between the lines, I'm basically arguing that academic medical centers are corporatization. And so then who are those investors? That investors comes down to your universities or your others. Your pool of funds can influence behavior in that sense. And you're aggregating, buying institutions, buying hospitals, buying others that you are then putting under your control that you've made an investment in from that structure. Your investors just don't happen to be outside the institution. They are the institution, but they're outside the physicians. Okay, so now we're getting a little bit more honed down on the definition. Because when we talk about outside investors, I'm talking about outside healthcare, the delivery of healthcare. Once you have an outside investor... And I would argue that that conflict of interest would technically exist in a multi-pronged, large academic medical center conglomerate, because many of them now are networks. They're not just an academic medical center. AMN would be a better description of many of them as opposed to AMCs. But you have these people who are outside the health delivery paradigm who have the fiduciary responsibility over those divisions that's a corporate relationship. I'm not seeking to defend or bash academic medicine one way or the other here, but I think that essentially what I'm hearing is that it's a little bit more nuanced in terms of how corporate medicine or corporatization be defined. It's not about necessarily outside investors being involved. As you mentioned, it could be inside investors. And in fact, the investor is the institution itself. And if there is a priority that goes beyond your area of interest. In other words, as radiologists, if there is a department of medicine, if there's a department of surgery, then we're essentially operating under a corporate structure. Correct. And that doesn't make it inherently bad. It's just a funding model. And I would actually argue that historically, those medical centers or academic medical networks have had that altruistic mission-driven approach that I favored, like if you gave an example of a private equity that was good for the specialty, then yes. Now, 
That being said, we know that there are institutions that have rubbed up against their physicians and the delivery of healthcare in a non-desirable way. And I think there was a blow up at Duke not very long ago that could be attributed to some of this corporate management and control, whereas you had the independent physician group who wasn't doing exactly what the hospital institution wanted them to, and you had a fight. And I mean, there's opportunities for those kinds of conflicts and fights to even evolve within a large physician group. Absolutely. Yeah. Just a little bit further along pulling on this thread then, because, you know, if we look at this type of corporate model of a multi-specialty practice that also manages facilities in order to deliver in the continuum of care, if we look at that from the most altruistic perspective, the idea of having alignment and deriving health outcomes that are a realization of synergies amongst many different disciplines and seeking to do that in the most efficient manner possible. Tell me then from your perspective within private practice, how can you engage with an external entity like a hospital or like a multi-specialty practice to realize those potential benefits? Great question. And just to get to that, not necessarily idealized, but a little bit idealized kind of academic medical center network model with that altruistic mission-driven approach, if that infuses the culture top-down, I consider that an ideal model because you have great resources, a mission-driven thing where anybody in there understands it, and ideally you would have communication flowing freely up and down that entire hierarchy. And that'd be perfect. And I'd argue historically, healthcare was much closer to that in a broad sense before you started getting into this era of these not-for-profit hospitals functioning much more as for-profit entities, making investments in the hotel-type hospital experience and some of these other distractions. But if you believe in the incentive of improving public health and population health, and you can use your resources as a huge conglomerate to do that, in a way where you have transparency, good communication, and you're not misincentivizing your executives and managers versus your healthcare delivery, that's perfect. I would love that. That's awesome. The problem is humans always mess that up. It's the same thing with politics. What's the best form of government? A benign dictatorship, except when you don't have a benign dictator. So then all of the other iterations you come up with are to protect against somebody who isn't the correct benign dictator. Same thing to answer your question with the private practice is when you have these independent multi-specialty groups or independent single-specialty groups working together with a facility, if you have good communication and transparency, you know the goals, it allows flexibility in that we need this. It allows us the flexibility to find the most efficient or functional way to get that done. We have more room for innovative projects, creativity, because you're not going through many committees of jurisdiction. I actually intended to work in academics through various reasons. We can come back to that. And I chose private practice. I actually interviewed again for academics and ended up staying precisely because there are some limitations with state-based and other large institutions between their committees and the control and the information. And I do that now as chair of radiology at a county hospital, where if I wanted to make a single change to the rad tech workflow in Epic, I have to go through three committees to get that done, even though it will only be my MR techs who would see this. Nobody else would see it. But it has to go that way because they have to prevent 
other stupidity, so it has to go through that committee work, which makes all work slow and inefficient and cost more than it should. So a benefit of having an aligned group of independent places is if you have good communication, you have good transparency, and you have a collaborative relationship, these independent entities have the ability to be much more experimental and innovative and solve some of these solutions in a way that I think kind of grinds on the necessary hierarchy in a larger group that is totally owned by a single entity. And I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying size is not always better. And there are compromises that come with size. And that kind of bureaucracy is one of them. And there are places who manage their bureaucracy better than others. But no matter what, I consider that an inefficiency. But like I said, you have to have transparency, communication, and a good collaborative relationship. But I think those independent groups are incentivized to do things efficiently for service and for others. So you avoid the socialization of responsibility by making it that group's responsibility. But if you're all employed in the entity, there's a certain socialization of responsibility or dispersion of responsibility that goes there and nobody feels on the button to get something done. Whereas if you're the contractor that needs to get this done for the institution and you have these shared goals, you got to get that done. That's how you eat. So it comes with a certain amount of stress, but that breeds creativity and innovation. So that's why I like that relationship model. I mean, it is to a certain extent a utopian model of the sort of coalition that exists between multiple practices that are contracted with a hospital, for example. And I suppose, you know, if the primary driver for the practices is, do I get recontracted? Do I get to keep this work? Then there is a direct alignment to assure that you're satisfying the central organization, the hospital. And one can make an argument as to whether or not that positions the hospital to have an outsized influence on the priorities that you have. That's where size comes into play because we don't always agree with some of the hospitals, but if you have enough size, there's a better parity in that relationship. So if you're an eight person radiology practice with one hospital and that hospital wants you to do something that you consider not ideal, you don't have a lot of room there other than persuasion and discussion. If you're a 100, 200 person practice who covers several hospitals for this place, They have to listen to a certain point because the threshold, the energy of activation to get rid of you has to be so high that there's more parity in that relationship. So I've had hospitals want to do noble things like incidental lesion tracking. The problem is they didn't have the mechanisms in place to do it. They didn't have the right things in place to close loop because we've been working on this for a long time. So I'm very familiar with all the steps it takes to get this process done. And we're still working on this, but this hospital just wanted to do it. And to a point where they wanted the RADS to enter an order into the medical record thing for the follow-up for an exam, tagging a physician. The problem is this health system has two different areas in Texas they operate, one of which they employ over 85% of the physicians. The area where we are, they employ less than 15% of the physicians. So essentially how I described it to them is what you're doing is creating a tracking mechanism for all the times you're not going to follow this patient correctly because they don't exist in your network and you have no way to know that they get these things done. And so it allowed me to be able to explain to them that while your intentions are good, this will not shake out how you want it to. And essentially you're just serving the lawyers a platter of all the ways that you fail. 
I mean, market dynamics unquestionably come into play in terms of the effectiveness of these relationships. But the thing that I wanted to just bring forward is the notion that there is a reliance that all the participants in the system are aligned with respect to the mission. And when you are talking about individual entities that are independent, there's risk that mission changes and all it takes is one group potentially wanting to prioritize their own financial outcomes, for example. That's why I say, I mean, it's a great utopian vision and while it's working well, that's terrific, but it's a metastable state, isn't it? I would argue that that metastable state exists even in your fully employed centers because say cardiology doesn't want to read certain ultrasounds or certain stuff anymore because they've decided whether it's financial or whether it's workforce or bandwidth or whatever it is, people are going to make those decisions. And then to your point about having that shared vision, this is one of those things where I think it's important for radiology groups, any single specialty group, you need to understand what's important to a hospital. You want to go work for or with a hospital you need to understand their motivations. And this comes down to you are now in a service industry position. You have a client. Now, I still think you are serving patient care and that's your priority. And I don't say that in a cliched way. Definitely get irritated when people throw out the all patient care stuff for everything. But you have a client and a service relationship. And this is one of those things I explained to residents when we interviewed them, not for my group out. When I was in residency, you're choosing a service-based specialty. Your job essentially is to assist other physicians, other entities, other organizations in getting their stuff done via radiology. So you are not the surgeon captain of the ship who commands in this entire architecture. You are going to be a very important piece, but a piece of the cancer center of excellence, the cardiology center of excellence, the oncology center of excellence. You're a piece of this. You don't own anything in a top-down way. You're a very important piece but you're a service. And I know people get upset when radiology gets lumped into like ancillary services. And I know you guys mentioned that. I think you and Dujak talked about that when you're talking about cost accounting and other things where radiology gets lumped in as like a cost center or an ancillary services. At Wake Forest, when I was there in training, they lumped radiology into dietary and two other things. And it was just insulting. Like the residents were just upset. It's like, you have to understand how people see you so you know best how to participate with them. Well stated. All right. We're going to rewind a little bit because I still haven't heard what made you decide to become a radiologist. Talk to us a little bit about that decision to become a radiologist. So my first clinical rotation was OB-GYN. And I was like, this is great. Surgery, clinic, small procedures. Like, that's awesome. I like it. And then I did surgery right after that, which basically told me that everything that the OB-GYNs did in the OR was wrong. And I thought trauma surgery was a lot of fun. I liked urologic surgery a lot. I didn't like the big procedures. Some of the smaller procedures were a lot of fun. I really liked the clinic environment in urology. So I enjoyed the physiology, the anatomy, like I enjoyed urology after my surgical thing. Then since OB-GYN was two months and surgery was three months, they kind of operated on the quarter system. So I had a month before I did medicine, which was going to be one of your big core pieces. And I needed to fill it with something. And there weren't a whole lot of options because you needed some prereqs for other stuff, but radiology was one. And somebody was like, it's relatively light. You won't have call because there was times where I was Q2 or Q3 on surgery. And that's why I loved Baylor, by the way, because Ben Taub County Hospital, I have an affinity for County Hospital. We got to do stuff. But they're like, radiology would be a good recovery month before you go into medicine and you have to do all this stuff again. It's like, 
all right, sounds great. So I did it. I didn't go in with any expectations. I mean, my experience with radiology before that was, keep in mind, this is a county hospital, and this will date me a little bit, but like running down to radiology to fetch the cut films for the CT that our pancreatitis patient had that we were evaluating for like a necrosectomy or whatever. That was it. Like there was a tool. But then sitting with them, this is your old school radiology pit. Everybody came in to talk with the radiologist. Everybody, ER, medicine, every surgical flavor under the sun. And even though it wasn't required, I think by my third week, I was interested in it. So I actually stayed overnight with the residents to see what call was like. And it was even cooler because then it's just the residents sorting it out together. And so after that, I was like, all right, I enjoy that they were kind of the center. I did my medicine thing, did a couple other electives, and then came back to it. You know, I liked urology. I liked gastroenterology a lot. It was just natural for it. They both lean heavily on radiology. And so did another elective month and then rotated through IR and then it was done. Like a whole bunch of your quick procedures, really cool stuff. And that was it. I was sold and made my decision there. Even though my advisor, who was a gastroenterologist, was like, that's great. You know, it's the right decision for you. And then I had multiple other people be like, but you're so social. Why would you want to do radiology? I was like, you interact with everybody. It is social. That's why I like the old oral boards. Like prepping for oral boards preps you for when the surgeon and the team just walk into your reading room. And they're like, hey, let's look at this. So you've got to not be an idiot right then. You've got to know your stuff. There's not Googling. There's not other stuff like you either have it or you don't. And that's why I like still now as chair of the department, I do the trauma and some of the other oncology conferences, like I learn more from the multi-specialty or just the surgery and the trauma conferences going over cases with them. I think if I'm good at radiology, I had excellent training and I had excellent mentors at Wake Forest, but I learned a lot from surgeons and from going through cases and looking at it from their perspective. Yeah. Super important. Great. Thank you for articulating that decision process. And I think a lot of us have gone through very similar experiences. You went to Wake Forest. And the one thing I want to touch upon when you were there, you pursued the Moorfield Fellowship for economics and health policy with the ACR. What led you, you know, amongst the task of learning radiology to step aside and focus on that? I was fortunate that the North Carolina Radiological Society pays for a resident from each of the programs to go to the ACR meeting. And so it was my second year. You know, I'm not a huge research guy, bench research or even the clinical research I did find moderately interesting. We did a little bit. But going to the ACR meeting, it was how the sausage was made. It was the legislation. It was the policy. It was the economics, you know, standards and going through the rest of it. And I had a little bit of experience with understanding how a council functions because when I was swimming, I was the Texas representative to United States Aquatic Sports for their legislative council who sets the rules on how we respond to FINA, the international swimming organization. You know, I was one of the athlete reps that we first voted to give our Olympic athletes a stipend because prior to that, it was just purely amateur work. And so I was a little bit familiar with the how this plays out, but then seeing that for radiology and what I was doing, I was like, okay, these are my people. This makes sense. So I went second year and we go visit Capitol Hill because you're going for the legislation piece. I got to hang out with the Charlotte Radiology guys. So Van Moore, Chris Ulrich, and I would ask questions. They'd explain it to me. You know, we talked a little bit. You're walking around Capitol Hill all day. Then when the next year rolled around and my program director sent out the invitation, nobody else responded. I was like, I'll go back and went back, hung out with the Charlotte Radiology guys again. And that's when Chris recommended that I apply for the Moorfield. I didn't know it existed. I didn't know it was there. 
And I applied and luckily got it. And like I said, I was never a great writer. I've gotten better over time. If anything, I now write more like I speak, which seems to do better for me than trying to make Faulknerian sentences connected by dubious commas and other punctuation. But I wrote my personal statement for the Moorfield and I asked my wife to read it. And she's like, this is crap. And just re- she rewrote it for me. As she said, she kept my name on the top of it. Excellent. Nice. And what did you do during the fellowship? You know, pre-COVID, back when everybody was working at ACR in Reston. So it was two weeks. Well done to my program and program director for giving me the time to go do it. Wake Forest didn't have a huge ACR contingent at that point. I was the black sheep. Going to your program director to ask to go for two weeks for a healthcare economics fellowship when other people aren't necessarily getting time or resources for research and other stuff, like, you know, props to them for letting me do it. But we got to hang out with ACR staff. So I got positioned in the pool with the ACR economic staff, work through kind of the fundamentals of CPT, RUC pieces, looked at them with the rule responses and how they interact with Medicare. Uh, and I was lucky while I was there because that's when Larry Muroff and them had the economics forum. So the ACR was always invited to go to the economics forum. So I got to do two days, and I think it was in Alexandria, Virginia, and go sit there. And that's when the first time I saw Rich Dujak give a talk, and I saw some of these other, Zeke Silva, Bib Allen, and met there, and I was the Moorfield fellow. So I had like a prime ACR seat in the front, so they could see me there, and we got to talk to a few of them. And then part of the Moorfield was that they would let me join a committee if I wanted. And so I tend to ask for forgiveness, not for permission. So I joined three. And then it was the next year that they had a staff member leave ACR and go work for dermatology, but they'd already booked her a hotel. And they asked me if I wanted to go see a ruck meeting. And I tend to say yes. And so I did. And then the story from there is very clear. Did you ever get to meet Jim Moorfield? Very briefly. We took a picture at one ACR meeting with a bunch of the Moorfields, but I never really got to talk to him. So the one Ruck meeting that I personally attended, Jim was the Ruck advisor at the time. And yeah, spectacular individual. And it's phenomenal how his legacy lives on through this fellowship. Jim Borgstead was involved in sort of getting ready to take over for him. And it is a phenomenal aspect of the ACR's initiatives. Let's talk about the fact that you kind of were bouncing between Texas to the East Coast, back to Texas, then to North Carolina, and then finally back to Texas. And so after your fellowship, you joined Radiology Associates of North Texas in Fort Worth. You mentioned that you considered the possibility of academic positions, but ultimately you settled on RANT. And what was it? Talk about the positions you considered and you know what led you to say RANT was the place to be. I would love for that origin story to be, I evaluated these private practices from coast to coast and I interviewed them and we looked at their books and I sorted out their culture. It comes down to the fact that my wife is a medical examiner. There's not very many of them. She's a forensic pathologist. We were supposed to stay at Wake Forest, didn't for a variety of reasons. She got a job with the Dallas Medical Examiner's Office that they held for a year while she finished her fellowship in New York. So all of a sudden I went from planning to stay on faculty at Wake to needing to get a job in the DFW region. And this is 2012, 2013, a downturn, not a lot of jobs. I couldn't get academic places to even respond to email. You know, I knew of Rant beforehand. One of our IR fellows who trained at Wake had gone there two years before and had enjoyed it. And so I reached out to him to talk to him about it. You know, I knew some of the Texas programs just from interacting with radiology in the interest group when I was still there in med school. And so, you know, there's a few that are on the radar, you know, Austin, San Antonio, and the Rant specifically in Dallas, Fort Worth. And so, 
that's it. And I was lucky between Cynthia Sherry, Zeke Silva helped me get in contact with them. And I started as a one-year non-renewable employee to cover the new contract they had to cover radiology at the county hospital, John Peter Smith. And so that's how that started. Oh, that is really sweet. So then you were fulfilling that employed role there for that year. And then how did it evolve from there? We tend to ask for forgiveness, not permission. And so we got there and it was new for Rant. So it hadn't been assimilated into Rant yet. But me and a guy who started a month after me, Rishi Seth, who became our next youngest board member eventually, he and I just started fixing stuff protocols, feedback for the techs. With the PAX admin there, who Carlos, and I still love him, he's a magician, we created a application protocol interface within iSight, the PACs they were using, where you could right-click and it would launch a Google form so you could give feedback on the performance of the exam for the techs, and it would aggregate it in a sheet, no HPI, and it would go to the managers, whether CTMR, ultrasound, or whatever, because before the radiologist may say, hey, this isn't good, well, how, why, you know, how do we make it better? Well, they also had no mechanism for saying, hey, good job, because you may have an exam that has motion artifact, but you know what? You repeated it and you tried it again. You clearly were paying attention. That's a good job. Just because the exam didn't come out well doesn't mean that you didn't try and exert the effort that I would like you to exert. And so just by doing little things like that, all of a sudden, some of the other rant physicians, because we had a networked interface by that point, so they could read from offsite, it went from they didn't want to read the studies at JPS because they didn't look good to how do we make our stuff look like the JPS studies? It was only three, four months before they moved both Rishi and I onto a partner track. So we started both as employees, but they moved us over to shareholder track in about five November, December. Just a few years after you joined the group, you participated in publishing a two-part paper in the JACR with Jose Mori and Nora Haney and Matt Hawkins on adding value as young radiologists. What brought the four of you together to write that piece? ACR and AFIP. We did our four weeks of AFIP together and established our friendships there. We're still friends. Yeah, And of course, AFIP is now AIRP. One major focus of that paper was value-based radiology. And you posit that young radiologists are particularly well-positioned to capitalize on the opportunities presented by the transition to value. Maybe you could talk a moment for the benefit of the young radiologists that are listening, you know, why and how they can really help us in that transition to value. Right. And this comes down to your habits and your aphorism that, you know, Old dogs don't learn new tricks. Physicians in general is always learning. Radiology is always learning and evolving. But to a certain extent, you're going to get fixed to a degree on how you practice, the way you practice, your comfort levels. And I think coming out as a young rad, you have much more malleability in your skill set and in your perspectives, which is even more important than your skill set, to take in the patient's point of view, the hospital's point of view, the population point of view, because you've been exposed to these a little bit more and you may see or be willing to consider how you fit into that larger piece better than somebody who classically was trained as like, it's this, you do this, you send it out and it's not your responsibility anymore. And I'm not belittling any classical training or anybody's perspective on it. There's utility in all of it. But if you want to play for value, that's where bringing in a lot of these different perspectives matters more. And my argument there is that it's not your skills, it's not your specialty, it's your openness to understanding priorities and importance for others 
that may give you the insight to then provide that value by adjusting the way that you perform your specialty services. And seven years since writing that, have your ideas on the topic evolved or you feel as you did in 2015? They're similar. I would say that my perspective may have matured a little bit, perhaps less optimistic, less idealistic. I'm always an optimist. I'm a rational optimist, but I'm an optimist. The crushing weight of reality and other people's workloads. So to provide some nuance to that opinion, I would argue that you have to have the bandwidth to allow those outside perspectives in. And if you're just feeling crushed by your normal responsibilities, that's your killer for innovation and productivity. And that's one of those things we've discussed is like, how can you be creative if your entire bandwidth is taken up just getting your daily work done? It's your executive whiteboard time. Like if you're always in meetings, you can't sit there and come up with the next good idea. If you are just working through the work list, you can't think or act or do extra work. And one of the points I think Matt Hawkins made well in one of the talks he gave at the ACR is... Sometimes the most doctorly thing you'll do as a radiologist is nothing. As in somebody calls you and says, hey, I have a patient with this, this, and this, and they've had this imaging, and you look at it and you take in the patient's history and their perspective, and you're like, you know what? We don't have any other radiology that's going to help you. There's no way to get paid for that, but that was the most doctorly thing you did that day. That's that broader perspective. So one of the things we've tried to do is allow for those things. So how do you incentivize people to take on those little responsibilities, the phone calls, the multidisciplinary meetings, the others, when they know that they have this RVU generation to do? So we took Samir Patel's idea that the value-added activities, the non-interpretive activities, and we actually, at, in our practice, call them VAUs, value-added units. So essentially, you know, if you spend an hour in a conference, you just report that through the software we report it back to the hospitals like, hey, we did all this work for you, but also we deduct that from your expected responsibility for the other work you needed to do because it's an incentive. If a physician walks into your office with three CDs to go over patients, I don't want you to treat that physician abruptly or curtly. You want to go through those because that's patient care. That's real patient care that you're doing right there. So to incentivize that, we gave people the ability to report that time in a way that would make them not anxious to sit there so they could be a physician and not feel like they had to get back on the treadmill and kick those people out of the office. So soon you will become the president of your 200 plus radiology practice, which is possibly the largest independent holy radiologist owned practice in the country. And you have already held substantial leadership roles, including your services chair, as you mentioned, of John Peter Smith Hospital, which is a 573 bed county hospital with level one trauma center. Have you pursued any dedicated leadership training in anticipation of these roles? Specifically, no. Now, in general, yes. Actually, I did a lot of the RLI stuff when residents and fellows could do it for free. Like my wife was doing her two years of fellowship in New York. So my fourth year and fellow year, I was just cooking and cleaning for me. So I didn't have other stuff and we didn't have kids yet. And so I would tuck in and do a RLI webinar, do their Harvard Emergent Leaders seminars because you could do those. I don't know if those are free, but they were steeply discounted. It's tools. It's developing tools, just like finance was tools. So I did a lot of those over time. And so my fellow year, I did an RLI 
program that was kind of an on-site program. It happened to be in Dallas, and it was more of a focused leader training for people who were there. But again, asking for forgiveness, not permission, I applied and they took me. And I actually met the current and then the next presidents of my group who were there doing their leadership training with the RLI program. I think it was called the RLI Expedition Training. And so actually the president at that time, he had just become the president and I was in his small group and he's like, are we interviewing you like next week or the week after? He's like, yes, sir. Do you want to change groups? Does this make you uncomfortable? He's like, not at all. I consider this part of the interview. And so I've done some of the RLIs. I've done some of our hospital networks have internal leadership trainings. I did it for Texas Health Resources. We did projects for the hospitals. The Texas Medical Association has a physician leader college. Did theirs, which was another bunch of Saturdays. My wife was getting pretty tired of this because if I wasn't working a weekend, then I was at one of these leadership training things for a weekend. But I did those for a few years after joining the practice. And this is one of those lessons I try to teach the younger physicians when I'm given the opportunity to talk. Don't wait for a leadership position to have training at it. If nothing else, understanding leadership tools allows you to interact with leadership. You don't need to be a leader to use and understand leadership tools. It can improve your interactions up and down the hierarchy. And so the waiting for a leadership position to get trained or to take those responsibilities doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. You want to have the tools so that you can work with a leader or become one on your own. It's delightful to hear the role that the RLI played in your leadership journey. So I assume that it's fair to say that you felt all those Saturdays was time well spent? Oh yeah, definite perspective. We haven't interacted much, but I tend to run pretty hot. I can be assertive and getting feedback both locally with my group from the hospital systems and others. It's learning those tools, how to conduct a meeting, how to interact with different groups to the point where like I know philosophically that I care very much about the opinion or the thoughts of any person in a meeting that we're having. But the way that I conduct that meeting or the way that I conduct myself may or may not encourage them to share those, even if I want them, or even if I say I want them, if I don't pay attention to the environment that I'm creating, my tone, my personality, I can clearly be forceful, loud, or what have you, then I'm not going to get what I want for the team, which is whatever we need to accomplish the goal we're working on, which in our industry is almost always going to be directly related to the patients. So I'm going to indirectly hinder our ability to come up with solutions if I don't modulate the way that I behave or conduct myself. Yeah, it starts with personal leadership. And that was an excellent articulation. Let's turn to the work that you've been doing with the ACR, and we'll focus in particular around your work as a RUC advisor, because it is such an interesting entity, and I love hearing people talk about it. You sort of mentioned your initial exposure. You went to a RUC meeting when you were a fellow during the Moorfield. How did you ultimately become the RUC advisor? And also, maybe tell everybody, what is the RUC advisor and what does it do? The meeting we're discussing, the RUC, is the Relative Value Update Committee. And so it's the committee within, governed by the AMA that provides feedback to Medicare on their recommendations for what RVUs should be attached to a code. So like if you're evaluating CT chest, the RUC is going to do their process and then recommend a value to Medicare. Historically, Medicare has accepted a large number of those. Sometimes they make adjustments. That's what the RUC in general does. Now, there's different positions on the RUC. The RUC panel is the one who votes. Now, radiology has a seat on that panel, and when I started, that seat was Geraldine McGinty, who had taken it over from Bib before. And Zeke Silva was the RUC advisor. And then I became the alternate advisor before taking that role over from Zeke. So the RUC panel members, that point Geraldine, gets to vote on the codes and the values. 
They may ask questions, they deliberate, discuss things, they vote. The advisors are the advocates. So they're advising the Ruck. This is what we think the code should be. This is the evidence we have for why it should be this way. And they're there to answer questions. And that's the polite way to describe the Ruck process. I've described it before as being a little bit of like an interrogation or a Senate confirmation hearing where everybody is not in your party and they all think you took something from them. It's a fixed pool. So if you get more RVUs, somebody else's stuff becomes less valuable. There's always that tension you know, and then you don't know who your allies are. You may have a code that is valued similar. And so gastroenterology understands how your code works, but the other people don't. And so the idea is you have physicians on this panel because they understand what other physicians do. But we know that we get so subspecialized sometimes that people don't necessarily understand what we're doing. And so that's where the advocacy comes in. The panel members can't speak to the codes. They can make points of information or points of clarification, but even then they're very constrained by that. Or I find it very constraining as I'm now the panel member, I'm no longer the advisor. So the RUC advisor leads the team in the ACR who does the research and the surveys to come up with code value recommendations that we presented at the RUC. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for laying all that out. And last year, I had the opportunity to speak with Zeke Silva, who, of course, is now the chair of the panel, which is phenomenal. It was just as he was taken over there. And, you know, he and I discussed how CPT valuation can come down to a bit of horse trading and sort of backroom deals. I wonder if you would share a particularly intriguing story of code valuation in which you participated or perhaps orchestrated and maybe brought in some of those principles from your work in Princeton. Right. So deliberations of the Ruck are technically private, but we'll skate right along those boundaries. They publish everything. So it's transparent in their votes and deliberation and what have you. It comes down to, like I said earlier, it's psychology and motion. So you are using data, but how you present that data very much can direct the flow of that meeting. And so like we discussed earlier, there's robust data on parole board hearings or judicial opinions, and they're influenced by the time of day. You mentioned in one of your other podcasts, like Daniel Pink, talking about the motivations, but he also has a book about timing where he goes through that research. So you know if you're an early code on the first day of the ruck in the morning that people are going to be caffeinated and you're going to discuss nuance and detail in a way that would just extract the last bit of empathy from your soul. Whereas if you're an afternoon code later in the meeting, they won't let anything crazy fly, but you will likely have a different interaction with it because it's just people. And that's one of those things to understand. And so how you communicate with a room of people is just different than how I would give a lecture, than how I would communicate to colleagues or in a board meeting, because you have to be very careful what you say and how you say it, and including if you choose to say something. And one of those things that Zeke taught me early is like, even if the next thing you have to say is the cure for cancer, if the table is going your way, keep it to yourself. Because all you can do is derail that momentum. And that momentum is a real thing. I can't tell a Ruck member what to do, but other Ruck members may say, hey man, you're wrong on this. And that's actually one of those stories I've shared in the ACR is how the MAMO codes, we presented those codes. We talked about how the physician, the, the radiologist interacts with those patients and discusses things with them. And you had Ruck members like, radiologists don't talk to patients. And you hear that getting echoed around the table. And that momentum is now fully against you. Until one of the female Ruck members spoke up. When I had my mammogram, I met with the radiologist and we went through it. And she's the one who directed my care. And then another female 
ruck member said it. And then one of the male ruck members said, I went with my wife when she got her diagnostic done in her biopsy. And the radiologist is the one who walked us through it right there. I can't tell ruck members that they are not going to believe me, but the ruck members can tell that. But that's because other radiologists were doing the right thing. They were doing exactly what they told us they do, which is they work with the patients. You didn't just get a random sample of three people whose radiologists were doing the right thing. It's because that's how the practice is. So it was appropriately valued that way because of that. But that's that emotional bit at the table that matters. That was one time it went in our favor. It's gone against us plenty. But one of those other examples is sometimes the best answer to a question is not sit there for me to rationalize and tell you all about it. If they say, so you're telling me that the MR tech has to do this, this, and this. Yes. Extraneous detail adds nothing to that answer because if you add detail, somebody else who may or may not have been paying attention latches onto it and then asks a bunch of other questions and then you lose that spiral. So you have to control that balance of where the direction is going within your ability. One of the ones I particularly remember losing on, which I still think is unfair and really irritates me is we should have more minutes for the time it takes to screen patients for MRI. We just should because it takes a lot to screen patients for MRI. The questionnaires, the text, the changing of the clothes, the work for it. I think we got severely shorted there, but it comes down to anecdotes that other people told of different experiences where they may have been abbreviated or they had a different experience. And the RUC very much works on average or the predominant or pluralistic answer. And a couple anecdotes going the wrong way can sway it, even though I feel like it should be there. It is what it is. You know, leadership can be stressful. You're a pretty high energy guy. And so I get the sense you can probably handle a lot. But at some point, you need to unwind and recharge. What do you do to unwind and recharge? Before kids, much easier. Did a lot of bike riding, mountain bike and cycle cross with some of my buddies. You know, we played a lot of golf. Host kids, more difficult. Unwinding, maybe within my ability to unwind and whatever entertains them. I would try to combine that to some degree. Athlete growing up, swimming, I'm most at home when I'm mildly suffering. It's the only way really to clear my brain. Like I have a garage gym and I do my workouts usually early in the morning. Like I put the girls to bed 7.30 to 8-ish and then I go straight to bed. But I get up at 4 and do my workout before getting going. Are you finding the right balance to spend time with your family, your girls, your wife? How do you achieve that family work balance? As I've gotten more senior, I've been able to structure my time differently. Like I don't do evening calls or meetings unless I absolutely have to. Like we used to do a lot in the evening for the ruck team. And we still had to sometimes when we were working with SIR just because they have a harder time breaking away during the day. Other than that, when it was mostly me, we would do times during the day. Like you can step away from work for 30 minutes or an hour if we have to do these things because the evening was one of the few times you got to do stuff. I think that's one of the benefits of the flexibility of radiology. Sometimes I have a flexible shift and I can work from home and that means I don't have that drive time, the difference between when I'm done and then when we can go play, as it were. And that's helped, though there were times where I'm trying to keep a toddler from committing suicide while trying to feed a baby, while making dinner, while my wife's driving home from work with an ACR phone call on speaker, like in my pocket of my scrubs. So dividing that time has not always gone well, but sometimes that's the price you pay to get to where, like I mentioned earlier, you don't have to like the game, you have to play the game until you get to the point where you can change the game. So sometimes that's the dues that have to be paid to get to the point where you can structure it differently. Are you at the point where you're changing the game? Trying to. Looking ahead, what excites you most about radiology? I think we provide a lot of value within healthcare. And I think we've shown that for patient decision-making, both medical and surgical decision-making. And so 
continuing to share and express that value to others is going to be important. I don't know that these value-based payment models will pan out. They're very difficult when you get into the nuance and the attributions and the other issues. To a certain point, I appreciate the idea of the macro MIPS, the quality metrics from the government in so much as you have to have a certain amount of infrastructure in your department to be able to answer those. But then once you have that infrastructure, you can use that not to belittle the metrics, but to actually benefit patient care and your constant quality improvement mission. I think we've done that really well. Now, whether we sell that really well, that's different. That's one of the things we'll work on. I think radiology in general has always done a very good job at radiology. We don't always do a good job of telling other people how we do it. One of the things that's most important to me as I transition into the leadership role at Radiology Associates is I very much think that we have spent a lot of time caring about what our hospitals think. We have spent a lot of time caring about what our patients think. And we need to spend a little more time about what it's like to be a radiologist what that means for them, how they interact with the software, the EHR, the computers themselves, their physical input devices. Just because Microsoft came out with something in 1980 does not mean it's the right tool for you. And so getting a little more creative and finding ways for people to perhaps interact with these systems in a way that adds to their expertise or their experience as opposed to them tolerating it is something that we'll be focusing on. Dr. Kurt Shoppe, this has been really exciting conversation from my perspective. I love the way you think about the field and how you bring your background into such a diverse set of considerations. And I also am so happy that the RLI has played such an important role in your your journey, which is just kicking off in many ways. And so we're really looking forward to seeing what the future holds and the value that you bring and what you're going to invent for us. So thank you very much for joining us today on Taking the Lead. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.